I would like to draw your attention to the book of Micah. This morning we will be looking at the beginning of chapter 4, the first five verses of Micah chapter 4. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely sufficient. Micah chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow into it, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. Out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples, and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God. We will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. O Lord, we ask this morning that you would open up your word to us. That it would not just be words on a page, but rather it would be living and powerful in our lives, even as you have promised Help us to see the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to see the duty that you require of us, the duty that begins with faith in Christ. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. It is hard to hear bad news, isn't it? Imagine that one day you get up and you just aren't feeling very well. You feel a bit sluggish. You think maybe you've put on a little extra weight. You just don't feel yourself. And so you go to the doctor, hoping that the doctor will look at you and say, Oh, don't worry about it. Everything's fine. Keep doing exactly as you're doing. You're in good shape. But instead, the doctor tells you that you have to change your habits. You can't eat certain foods. You've got to get some more exercise. You've got to do this and you've got to do that. And he says, you may even be developing a disease. You could be having cardiovascular problems or maybe on the, the edge of diabetes. And you've really got to watch yourself here now. You should be concerned. That's kind of what it's like to hear Micah. Because Micah brings us bad news that we need to hear. It doesn't help us to ignore it. We have to understand the reality of the situation. And so in chapter 3, Micah was filled 
with judgment for the corruption and injustice that was found amongst God's people. And now, here in chapter 4, it's as if the windows of heaven have opened. The fog has parted. The light is coming in. And it's a very different type of message. So different, in fact, that many scholars and commentators are absolutely certain that Micah could never have written chapter 4. Because after all, if you're a prophet, you're really just a one-note Johnny. You preach about uh, judgment and disaster and gloom and doom. You're not capable of preaching about mercy and grace. Well, I'm here to tell you this morning that they're wrong. That Micah's message here in chapter 4 is one of grace and mercy. It is one of hope founded in a time of disaster and gloom. And so this morning, I'd like us to see three things that Micah points us to. First, looking for the Lord's kingdom. That we should be looking for the kingdom of God. We should be having our eyes open and looking for the kingdom of God. Second, when we look for the Lord's kingdom, we find it, and then we see what it is like to be living in the Lord's kingdom. And then finally, Micah gives us assurance at the end of this passage to be resting in the certainty of the Lord's kingdom. Looking for the Lord's kingdom, living in the Lord's kingdom, and resting in the certainty of the Lord's kingdom. Let's start by looking at the beginning of chapter 4 and how we are called to look for the Lord's kingdom. So, what we are presented with here by Micah is a future, a surprising future. Now, as hard as it has been to hear Micah's message in the first three chapters, especially chapter 3, we expect even less what we find here in chapter 4. Right after telling us in chapter 3, verse 12, that Zion will be flattened and that Jerusalem will be made a ruin. Now Micah turns to a great picture of hope and even glory for that same Zion. Now we may think that these two pictures should not go together, but God knows better than we do. And there are two indicators in our text that show us God's purpose in this new chapter, as it were. The first indicator you can't see. And that's not because it's not there but it's because in our translation, it's not found. It's a little Hebrew word, really actually only a letter. It's a transitional word, the Hebrew letter Vav. And that means and. Some translations translate it and, or now, or but. It is a marker connecting the narrative from what comes before it and what comes after it. And so here the idea is that chapter 3, verse 12 goes together with chapter 4, verse 1. They are connected. They could not be more different in what they describe, but they both describe Zion and they are connected. Now why is this? God does not want you to hear chapter 3, verse 12 as his final word. It isn't. There is something that follows 
the judgment that God brings at the end of chapter 3. Now, this is very important for us. Do not see the trials and troubles of your life as God's last word for you. If you are trusting in Jesus, God has an and for you. He has a further purpose for you. There is a word of glory beyond the word of suffering. Now, after all, that was exactly true of our Lord Jesus Christ. His glory followed His suffering. And so it is also true for the followers of Jesus. Now, the second indicator of God's purpose here is found in the phrase, in the latter days. Now, just because God gives us a message of hope and of grace, do not assume that God is not concerned with wickedness and sin. He had just thoroughly rebuked His people through Micah. And so this second phrase reminds us that this reversal, this hope, is not something that those whom Micah addressed in chapter 3 will experience. It's something far off. You see, they have forfeited their place in God's blessing. They forfeited the place of God's blessing because of their unbelief. Now, we see their unbelief through their actions, but what is at the core is their unbelief. This is also important. It's not just their sin, the things that they are doing that merit judgment. No, it is their rejection of God and His ways. They sin all the more because they presume they deserve God's favor without actually believing in Him. Now, we see this dangerous tendency all the time in our world today. The visible church and people who call themselves Christians often reject the Bible. They reject Jesus as the way of salvation. They reject God as He has revealed Himself in His Word to be. They want no part of the true God. Yet, they claim the blessings that come from believing in the true God. So we must be careful. If we would have the blessing of God, we must have faith in God. We must trust God. We must place our belief in Him. We must long to have a relationship with Him. It's not just a matter of what we do. It is the relationship that we have with God that is important. Now, what is it that God will do? God tells us that He will establish His kingdom. And He shows this by speaking of the Temple Mount, Micah calls it the mountain of the house of the Lord. Now, the most visible aspect of God's kingdom in Micah's day was the temple mount. Micah is giving us an 8th century B.C. picture that we need to translate into our day. There are images that describe for us a place, a time, a relationship. It's just as if if you were to see a picture of the Empire State Building, you would immediately think of New York City. That's what's going on here. Micah wants us to think about the kingdom of God, and so he gives us the picture of the temple. And this mount, Micah says, will be established in verse 1. 
That is, it is secure. It will never again be pounded into wreckage. Now think about what that means to someone hearing this. God has just told Israel that Zion will be flattened, that it will be plowed as a field, that Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins. And now Micah turns around and says, in the latter days, the house of the Lord shall be established. It will be secure. It tells us what God's last word for His kingdom is. That even the sin of His people cannot destroy His kingdom. And it's not just that the kingdom will be established and firm. It will be the greatest of all kingdoms. It will be supreme. Micah describes it as the highest of the mountains. Now again, this is a picture from Micah's day. As varying religions built their temples, they always put them on mountains. And you can understand why. The, the picture is the higher the mountain, the closer you are to heaven, the closer you are to God. And so the biggest the mountain is, the highest the temple is, the closest religion is to God. And what Micah is saying here is that the mountain of the temple of God is the one that is highest of all. It is the true religion. It is the one that is near to God and is heaven. What Micah is giving us here is a picture of the glory of God for his people. And it's meant to give us hope. Now, the future is surprising here at the beginning of chapter 4, especially in light of the end of chapter 3. But it is also a hopeful future. Micah goes on to describe not only the security and the supremacy of the mountain, but also its attraction as well. He says at the end of verse 1, People shall flow to it, and many nations shall come. And the idea here, the picture here, is of a stream going uphill, up the mountain. A stream of people going up. And that image is intentional. It's unnatural. How do rivers flow on a mountain? Well, they flow down. Have you ever seen a river flow up against gravity? No. But what Micah is telling us is, is that this river does flow against nature. And isn't this actually how the Bible describes salvation? Isn't this how the Bible describes the building up of God's kingdom? Jesus puts it this way in John chapter 6, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, drags him, brings him. And in John chapter 12, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. You see, that is the nature of salvation. We are taken against our nature, against our sin and our sorrow and our self-centeredness. And by His grace, God turns us into new creations. And we flow uphill, as it were, to go to the Lord. Now, this hopeful future is beyond anything that they could imagine. If you were to ask the people of Michael's day, what would you hope for? They would have probably said something like that the kingdom of Judah would be secure in the midst of our enemies. That we would have this small kingdom of Judah, that we would be protected, that our enemies wouldn't attack us and wouldn't destroy us, but we could live in harmony in this little place of the world. 
they would have settled for a faithful, small nation. But God will not settle for small. His kingdom is to be glorious, magnificent, expansive. That's why Micah describes it as many nations shall come. This predicts a large-scale conversion among the nations. It goes beyond Israel and Judah and goes throughout the world. And this is the message of the Bible, Old and New Testaments. Isaiah tells us in chapter 54 that God is the God of the world. Not just part of the world, but the world. The Gospel of Mark in chapter 16 says that the Gospel is to be proclaimed to all creation. And that in the book of Revelation we see all tongues, tribes, and nations gathered together. The people come from all throughout the world. Many nations from afar off are gathered to the mountain of the Lord, brought into the kingdom of God. Now, we know that Micah is talking about conversion here, not just a change of geography. Look at verse 2. Why do they come? Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. Why? That he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in His paths. You see, they have faith in God. They want to know God's ways. They want to be taught His law. And they want to live out what they believe. They want to walk in His paths. This is true conversion. Is that your hope for the future? Do you have hope in the midst of struggles by seeing the gospel take root in Houston and around the world? Does it thrill you to see your children and children in our congregation profess faith in Christ? Does it thrill you to see people come here from China and from Africa and from South America and dwell here with us at Christ Church and sing God's praises? That is a real and a secure hope. Now that brings us then to the second thing that Micah wants us to see. When we look for the Lord's kingdom, we find it, and then we will see what it is like to live in it. And in the Lord's kingdom, it is the Lord who acts. Now God does not need us to bring about His kingdom. Sometimes we are confused about that. Sometimes we think God needs us to usher in the kingdom of God. Are you tempted to view the world that way? To worry about our laws or about our elections as if God's kingdom depended on that? Do you find more comfort in this election season in polls than you do in God's promises? If so, then you need to repent. Because our hope and comfort is found in the promises of God. And at the end of verse 2, Micah explains why the world has changed. Why there are mass conversions. Why God's kingdom is established. He says, for out of Zion shall go forth the law. It is for, note the causal word, 
Because, for, because the law goes out of Zion, and because the word of the Lord comes out of Jerusalem, that is why there are mass scale conversions. That is why the world is changed, because God has taken his word to the nations. Out of Zion is actually emphatic here in our text. It's at the beginning of this sentence. It's from God's kingdom that the world will be changed. Not from Hollywood. Not from Washington. It is from God and His kingdom that the world will be changed. And what will the Lord do? Micah tells us in verse 3, He will judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. Now, the word here for judge... Do not have in your mind what we often think of, a courtroom setting with a plaintiff and a defendant, and the judge has to make a decision. And the judge does have to make a decision who wins the lawsuit, but you know as well as I do that after the judge makes that decision, the plaintiff and the defendant still hate each other. There's no reconciliation. There's no peace. It's just something that needed to be decided. The idea of judging here means to put things right. God isn't just deciding a dispute. He's making things right. And actually, even at the root of the phrase that's translated here, decide disputes, is the word rebuke or chastise. Again, to set to right. He tells them to stop their disputes. And he puts everything right. Now, this is what the psalmist sings about over and over again that we look forward to. In Psalm 9, in Psalm 67, in Psalm 96, in Psalm 98, that God will judge the world or all peoples with equity, with fairness, with justice. And no one can stop him. God's power is such that he imposes his justice even on strong nations, Micah tells us. Even on ones far away. No one can resist God. Do you wonder what will happen in the world? Are you nervous because of what's going on today in Russia? Or in China? Or even in forces here in America beyond your control? Don't be. Trust the Lord. Even now, he is bringing about the establishment of his justice in all nations. His gospel is going forward. His will is being done. Our hope is not in armies or in geopolitics or in culture. Our hope is in the Lord, our God. Now, notice the effect of God's judgment, that is, his putting things right. Look again with me at verse 3. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Now this is a very famous verse in the Bible. It's so famous that people who don't know anything about the Bible know this verse. It's actually a verse that is carved on the wall of the United Nations. Now, it's describing peace here on earth. It's not a heavenly peace. 
It's effective here on earth. We know this because the implements that are described are earthly. And what it brings about is the exact opposite of what Jesus told us would be significant about the present evil age. That is, in this present evil age, nation would rise up against nation and would make war against nation. And so now here we see that God, in His kingdom, will bring about peace. But do not miss the crucial point. Many see this part of verse 3 as a hopeful dream for the world to bring about. I told you that it's on the wall of the United Nations. The United Nations actually thinks they can bring this about. Now, 70-odd years of abject failure notwithstanding, they actually think that they could bring about a world in which people will just decide all of a sudden to stop their aggression, to not want their neighbor's things, to put down their implements of war, and to live in peace forever. But that's not what the Bible teaches us. The Bible teaches us that this peace that Micah talks about comes after God acts. The verbs of the people acting, of the beating the swords into plowshares and the turning the spears into pruning hooks, come after God has judged, after God has decided disputes. God does that first, and that leads to peace. It's the intervention of God in this world that brings about peace for the world. But notice also that the peace that the Lord brings about is not abstract. It is specific. It is not general, but rather it is particular. Micah moves from a general idea of peace for the future, for the nations, to what looks like peace for the individual person. Do you see how different that is from how politicians and leaders talk? They talk in vague generalities about how things will get so much better. But they don't really offer any specifics. The scope of God's peace is huge. It encompasses the nations. But the benefit is described in a very particular way. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. This peace that has gone throughout the world, it has come to those who are outside of Israel. That's who the they are. They are the nations. It's gone throughout the whole world. But the stress of this peace is on each person. The specific Hebrew word for man is used in this verse. Each individual will be blessed by this peace. Now, it is fascinating that Micah would emphasize this for us, of this individual enjoyment of peace, because this passage actually has a parallel to another part of the Bible. If you have an opportunity this afternoon as you're gathered around the lunch table, go to Isaiah chapter 2, and you will see that the language in Isaiah 2, verses 1 through 4, are nearly identical to this section of Micah, with one exception this portion of the passage that we've just focused on, on the individual peace that comes to individuals in the kingdom of God. It's as if after terrifying you with God's judgment, Micah wants to comfort you personally with God's peace. Now, the enjoyment of this peace is also particular. The image is of the vine and the fig tree. 
These are important images. They're symbols of prosperity and security. It's as if God is saying, you don't need to worry anymore. You'll be taken care of. Now, we could sometimes lose that in translation because in my backyard, I'm not growing fig trees. I don't have vines along my fence. I don't think about that. But to a person of Micah's day, to an Israelite, that would be the symbol of security and safety. If I can go back almost a century, it's like saying there'd be a chicken in every pot. Or it's if I would say the stock market will never crash and your 401k will continue to grow and you will have health and sustenance. It's an image of peace, of rest, and prosperity. How important is that for us? We who live in a world filled with turmoil and chaos. We who are worried about health insurance. Worried about finances. Worried about relationships. What God is doing here is He is telling you that in His kingdom, you will be secure. And this security is punctuated at the end of verse 4. No one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. There's no one to make you afraid. Why? Because the Lord of hosts has spoken. And that ends it. Micah deliberately uses the name of God that conjures up an image of armies, of power and might. Now I want you to imagine what this verse would mean to Christians in China, or North Korea, or India, or many other places where they are persecuted, where they are terrorized and tortured simply for standing with Jesus. God tells them, and us, that He is standing with them. That a peace will come that none can disturb. That they have no reason to ever be afraid again. Well, all of this from Micah is good news. But what do we do now when we don't have the fulfillment of the kingdom at hand? You may say, Pastor, this is a wonderful promise. And I long for the day of the establishment of God's kingdom and His temple. And the prosperity that will come. But how does that help me right now? Life is hard. People come after me. They attack me. What does that do for me now? Well, Micah turns to that in verse 5. And the first thing that he tells you as you live now is do not be swayed by the world. Here we have again the word for. For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God. Now this opening word for is an interesting word. It's a, it's a transition word. It could be translated although, or for, or but, or because. But I think the best sense to take it is not even really to translate it strictly itself. It's in a well-known lexicon, Hebrew lexicon, it is described as giving emphatic nature, strengthening to a statement. Del Ralph Davis translates it this way. To be sure, let me get your attention. To be sure, I know right now 
the peoples walk in the name of their own gods. So Micah is acknowledging what we all know is true, that the world is a hard place, and that not everyone believes in Jesus, and that people mock us for believing in Jesus. They walk after their own gods, the gods of money, or the gods of Buddha, or the gods of Muhammad. The idea is that Micah is about to describe the current state of the world before the fulfillment of God's kingdom. It's as if he's saying, for the moment now, people are walking in the name of their own God. Now, this verb walk has a twofold sense. We've seen this before. First, it refers not to physical movement from one place to another. No, it is rather describing a way of life, a behavior. Second, the tense of it is ongoing. For now, they continue to live in this way. They walk in this way. They act in this way. Now, I want you to see what Micah means by this. It is not discouraging. We might be tempted to view it that way. We believe in God. We hope in God. But still, the world goes on like it always has. But instead, Micah wants us to latch on to the certainty of the Lord's kingdom. In spite of what you see in the world around you, God is at work. And his work will surely be successful. Micah is telling you not to be swayed by the world around you. Instead, focus on the Lord and rest in him. That's where the second part of verse 5 comes in. How we live now like the future. And the language is very emphatic. But we, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God. Micah repeats the we twice. He's deliberately emphasizing the distinctness of God's people. They live according to the hope set before them. They walk in the name of the Lord, their God. Now, this does not mean just because the people of the world have not yet come to embrace the Lord. They have not yet experienced what we see in verse 2. They have not found this longing for God's word. They're not rushing up into his kingdom. But just because of that does not mean that you can't live like that reality is true right now. We don't have to wait for the consummation of the kingdom. We are living in it right now. We are strangers and pilgrims in this world because we live in another kingdom, the Lord's kingdom. So I ask you, are you living a last day's lifestyle right now? Do you relate to others on principles of the eternal kingdom? Do you seek peace? Do you long for God's word? This is what we are called to do. One thing about prophecy is that it has multiple fulfillments. This word from Micah saw fulfillment in the return of Israel from exile and the re replacement, the reconstruction of the temple. Then it saw a further fulfillment in the coming of Jesus and in the establishment of the church in Pentecost and beyond. It sees still further fulfillment 
as we follow the Great Commission and we bring the gospel to the whole world, we see that in our work of missions. But we will see a final fulfillment when Jesus returns. Jesus will establish the mountain of the Lord forever. Jesus will draw all peoples to Himself. Jesus will judge the world with equity. And He will bring everlasting peace to earth. Do you believe that? If so, take comfort from that. But also, live like that. Walk in the name, in the authority of Jesus. Now, and forever. Amen.